Hi there and welcome to Voicebox, your weekly exploration of the art of the human voice and the best of the vocal music scene on public radio and podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman, and it's great to be here with you this evening. In Victorian times, children were considered good children when they kept their noses clean and their mouths shut. Children should be seen and not heard, as the saying went. But times have changed since then, and these days kids are expected to make a lot of noise. Sometimes adults even welcome it. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. A bunch of little kids and their parents rocking out to the Tagalog pop song, Miss Kita Pag Tuesday, right before bedtime. Miss Kita! I thought that playing that clip would be a great way to introduce tonight's theme, vocal health for children. As we just heard, when kids are having a good time singing, they make a lot of noise. But how healthy is it for them to shout as they want to do? Should children be encouraged to stop shouting altogether? How can they learn to use their voices in a healthy way? And what's the difference between adults and children when it comes to taking care of the voice? To answer these questions and more concerning the theme of children's vocal health, I'm lucky to be joined tonight by two wonderful guests. In the studio, we have Sarah Schneider, a speech-language pathologist at the UCSF Voice and Swallowing Centre and a member of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, or ASHA. Sarah is also a singer herself. She has studied voice privately in addition to performing in choruses and musical theatre productions. Hi, Sarah. Great to have you with us again. Thanks for having me. And joining us today on the phone is Kitty Verdolini-Abbott, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Kitty is an ASHA-affiliated voice specialist and a leading authority on communication science and vocal disorders. She recently embarked upon a formal, in-depth research inquiry into issues facing children's vocal health. Hi, Kitty. Thanks for being on the end of the line. I know it's extremely late for you on the East Coast. Thanks so much for having me. So now let's start by talking about the audio sample we just heard of those kids singing the Tagalog song, or rather shouting it. What are your thoughts about what we just heard, Kitty and Sarah? Why do the kids yell so much? (laughs) Well, um, I think kids do what kids do. I have an 18-month-old, and and he's loud. He doesn't know how to use an inside voice yet. (laughs) Um, And kids are kids. He's never hoarse, so he must be doing something right. (laughs) What about you, Kitty? Have you got any thoughts about the the clip we just heard? Um, Yeah, I think, first of all, children aren't as um, socially informed as adults are, and they don't know you're not supposed to do that, Mm -hmm. to be loud. And um, so they're loud. They express themselves spontaneously. So what happens at the physiological level when children sing like this? 
Well, uh, a lot of things could be happening, um, but uh, just based on what I could hear over the phone, uh, I would imagine that different children are using their mechanisms in different ways. Some of them are probably using them in ways that um, are not only effective musically, but are probably not going to be harmful. But maybe some of the other children, for who knows whatever series of, of, of random reasons, might be uh, what we call pressing their vocal folds together a little bit. And you can kind of hear that in me. I'm, I'm not pressing my vocal folds right now. One, two, three, four, five. But if I do um, the counting with a little bit of pressing, um, it would sound like one, two, three, four, five. Or at a higher oh, yeah. pitch, one, two, three, four, five. It's very different. It's kind of spontaneous um, for most people when they're getting louder. And it's known that pressing the vocal folds together is a um, major... Uh, biomechanical factor in injury. And so is this a more common thing among kids to do or are adults very prone to this kind of pressing too? Um, I, would, I would say that probably children and adults who are untrained probably have about the same rate of, of pressing um, based on statistics that um, about 3 to, uh, three to 9% of all uh, people, including children and adults, tend to have a voice problem at any given point in time, and probably the majority of those are due to voice use. So I would guess um, that the patterns of voice use are probably similar. Okay, and why, why do people press on their vocal cords like that? I mean, what are the main reasons? Well, I don't know that anybody's ever done a study on the reasons, but my best guess is that when we press our vocal folds together, we feel more effort and it feels like we're being louder, we're mm. actually not. Mm. And so I think maybe for that reason, um, it's spontaneous for a lot of people to do that, at least after probably about age, Sarah, you'd know more about this than I would. Um, I would guess starting at around age two or three, probably not before, and that's mm -hmm. um, interesting to, to think about. What do you think, Sarah? I, I agree. I think more, I, I mean, just watching the development of my, my son he doesn't really press he just you know is louder and and it seems to be easy I think as kids um I mean some of it's spontaneous and some of it is I want to be heard and I want to be the loudest and I want to show I'm having the most fun you know I think there's there's some probably unconscious maybe decision making in, involved in that and it's likely that an infant um it's certain that an infant doesn't have a concept for loud right the infant infant when the infant is being loud is just um being expressive just right um you know what have you but as children get older and they want to be loud um and they try to figure out how to do that um it, again i think when, when you're pressed like that you have a lot of sensation inside of your body so it feels like you're being loud but you're not actually when mm -hmm. you measure people acoustically you're not being as loud as you could if you weren't pressing so how challenging or detrimental even dare i use the word is it for children to be pressing like that on their voices that's pretty dangerous. <laughs> it's pretty dangerous. Um, what happens when you press your vocal folds together is that you increase the impact stress between your vocal folds, and impact stress is thought to be the primary cause of injury to the vocal folds. So um, the, the amount of damage is going to depend on the individual. Some people are more resistant to injury than others just for biological or genetic reasons. Um, but there's also the issue of um, the amount of pressing and the duration and the amount of recovery between episodes. And so all those factors can go into creating injury in some people and not in, and not in others with pressing. Do you want to add something, Sarah? I was just going to say it's sort of like wearing shoes that are too tight and you get a blister. <laughs> and maybe you take time off from wearing those shoes and, and you recover. Or you continue to wear those shoes and the blister is 
more and more irritated. Okay. So if um, you hear children shouting like that while they're singing, or even when they're just not, you know, they're just speaking, um, would would your technique therefore be to tell them to stop it altogether, or what? Oh, oh. <laughs> uh-huh. Sarah, go ahead. So I, I, um, I think sort of 10 years ago when I was being trained in, in learning about um, providing voice therapy for kids, we were trained in the Voice Abuse Reduction Program. Ooh, sounds very serious. <laughs> serious. And it basically was a systematic approach to decreasing loud voice use and increasing um, the, the child's awareness of how much they're using their voice. Even back then, and I think more now, I rely less on the voice abuse reduction program. Awareness is a big factor, but it's more for me, and it was then, and it's even more now, about teaching the child to use their voice in a more effective way. So teaching them where they, where they can feel their voice, where they can get louder without hurting themselves, where they can, how they sh- can experience their voice in a way that might be easier. Kitty, would you like to add anything? Yeah, um, this is a, a really interesting question, and I agree totally with Sarah that the traditional approach is to try to get children to, um, who have voice problems to get their, uh, them to use their voices less and less loudly. Um, but I think that that's probably pretty hopeless from the start. Um, <laughs> and I think that a lot of speech pathologists um, haven't liked to work with um, children with voice disorders because just intuitively something doesn't feel right about that um, or it doesn't feel possible. And so one of the things that um, I've been doing over the past several years progressively is um, developing a voice therapy for, for children. It's called Adventures in Voice now mm-hmm. um, that teaches children to be loud um, in a way that is safe for them, and that is without pressing. And it's not about telling children what to do, but it's a very experientially based program. Um, because one of the things that we know from the motor learning literature um, is that um, telling people what to do biomechanically mm-hmm. uh, seems like the right thing to do when we're trying to train somebody to do something physical, but it's actually a pretty poor way for people to learn to acquire a new physical skill and much more powerful is getting people to pay attention to the results of what they're doing biomechanically um, and also to engage in a lot of sensory or perceptual processing or as as Sarah said awareness of what's going on so um, increasing the the subtleness of children's awareness in terms of what's going on with their body when they're voicing I think is key. Wow, well, that's a completely different way of looking at the at the problem to to what it sounds like you were doing not so even long ago in mm-hmm. the field. It's it's a big change. So, Sarah, you've been working with kids for a long time, as I understand it. Um, can you summarise for us what's the difference between children's voices and adult voices? So, I mean, I think a lot of the physiology of how voice is made is the same, mm-hmm. um, just in a smaller scale. However, approaching, uh, I often approach a child by talking to them and getting their experience on voice because for adults experiencing a voice problem, they may say, well, my voice was quote unquote normal until this point and I had this experience and my voice changed where kids can't often identify a difference between what's quote unquote normal and then what's happened they Mm -hmm. just know their voice is how it is Mm -hmm. so it's sort of um, learning how they perceive it and then helping them to feel a difference whether it's feeling vibration in their in their lips or whether it's feeling airflow on their hand or you know we make ghost noises and feel ooh can you feel air when you're making your voice Mm -hmm. Um, so 
getting the perception of how they per- perceive their voice and then helping them to experience it in a different way. So the apparatus is exactly the same, basically. It's on a smaller scale, I mean, there there may be some other... Um, differences in the maturity of mm-hmm. the, the cartilage and the muscle and that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately, airflow is what makes the vocal fold vibrate and the whole vocal tract, the throat, the mouth and the nose resonate the sound. So we're mm-hmm. just doing it on a smaller scale. Okay, so then the issues that children face are the very same issues that adults face then? I, I would There's say no, so. There's like, no particular issues that children only have, for, for example. I would, I would say so. How about Kitty, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that children and adults tend to have the same kinds of problems and pathologies from voice use, but but, um, in addition to the child's larynx being smaller scale, as Sarah said, there there are also apparently some differences in the microstructure of the vocal folds um, that in some ways might be protective for very, very young children against injury, which might be why, you know, babies can scream and scream and not, not get into trouble because the microarchitecture is, is a little is different than the adult one and they may have a little bit more protection, a little bit more um uh, yeah, yeah, protection from, from injury. Um, so it is interesting, given those differences in microarchitecture, and, and the, the adult larynx develops over about the first 17 years of life. So up until about 17, the child larynx um, is a little bit different, different um, in its microarchitecture than, than the adult. So that makes it very curious that they have about the same rates of injury. Because you'd think if the microarchitecture were different, um, there would be different rates of injury for the same kinds of voice use, but there really aren't that we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's somewhat surprising, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you found that to be the case in your practice, Sarah? I mean, we see a, l- a significantly larger number of adults mm-hmm. than we do of children in our practice, but it's because of the way it's geared. Um, we're not at a children's hospital where mm-hmm. all we're seeing are children. Um, however, I do think that children and adults do have the s- similar voice problems. Let's talk a little bit about working with children. I mean, you touched upon this a bit earlier, Sarah, that children aren't necessarily perhaps aware that uh-huh. there's anything wrong with their voices. How do you go about diagnosing children? So in, in our practice, what we do is very much similar to the adults. If, if a child comes in with, some, with voice complaints, they will see uh, one of our laryngologists and one of our speech pathologists, and we will evaluate their voice with video stroboscopy. We'll evaluate their voice perceptually by listening to them. Um, we may feel their neck and see sort of how much tension are they holding in their neck. We look at their posture, their overall um, sort of voice use patterns. Before they even come to you, what kind of things need to happen for, for them or their parents or anyone around them to even realize that there's an issue at stake and then send them to you? I think it, it depends on the situation. Um, for example, we just evaluated a seven-year-old child the other day. That's The mom said, you know, my son loves to sing. We um, He auditioned for this choir. And um, when he auditioned, they accepted him. But they said, maybe you should go to the doctor and check out. It seems like he might be a little bit of horse. And she was kind of she said, we're not musical. We don't know what's going on with his voice. We always just thought he had a little raspy voice, you know, and, and he had had it since he was talking, since oh, he was wow. really young. Um, but then <laughs> over time, he was singing with the choir and I'm, I, I'm not sure the events around it, but they brought it up again to the mom and said, hey, have you gone to the doctor? And that prompted her to come. Okay. So um, he's not having any pain. He's not having any discomfort. It's just 
a change in quality. In quality. So the parents just need a little bit of, of prompting because clearly the child had no knowledge that there was anything wrong himself, which right. must be one of the principal challenges of working with children, I imagine. Yes, that awareness and in helping in aiding and changing behaviours is a big thing. Um, so how do you get parents motivated and on board? I mean, you know, it, it must be difficult, especially I know, Kitty, you're sort of doing some work in schools these days, right, when the parents aren't even around. Well, the program that we've developed can be used in schools, yes, and um, we've trained some, some clinicians in the schools. But, you know, I, I think that there are, there are disadvantages and advantages for every setting. What you have in the, in the outpatient clinic is, especially where a children's hospital is involved, is that a parent or guardian usually has to bring the child mm. um, to the clinic. And in a lot of children's hospitals, the parent or guardian, act, guardian actually has to stay on the premises for the whole time. So you have a captive audience in terms of the parent and parental mm-hmm. involvement. You can bring the parent in in the last five or ten minutes of a session and train the parent in what you're doing and send them all home with, with exercises that you've kind of vetted with the parent. But when you're working in the school setting, um, you, you don't have that advantage, and um, school clinicians tell me that it, very often it's even hard to get a response from parents in, mm. in certain cases at all. But what the, on the flip side, what you do have is you have the environment, um, the social environment, in which the child is spending most of his or her time. And so very often, especially with children, it's helpful to... I don't want to say therapize, but but sensitize a whole group of children so that everyone is starting to use um, a healthier voice pattern. It's, I think it's easier for a child to acquire and maintain a healthy voice pattern if people around him or her are doing that, especially peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you lose in the school setting in terms of uh, potential parental involvement, you gain in terms of the, the, the ability to generalize um, to the peer situation. You're not going to have 30 peers, you know, in the clinic. Um, every time <laughs> Thank you God. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> that would be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, this, this issue of motivating children and getting interest in, in, within the kids themselves is, is an important one, right? Um, you know, obviously it's one thing to have parents standing over their children saying, you must do your vocal exercises. But how do you motivate kids, Sarah and Kitty, to invest in their voice therapy themselves so that they don't always have to be reminded or reprimanded about it by their parents? Yeah, um, well, one of the important things is to, as I know, you know, Sarah has mentioned, is to set the stage for therapy. So we don't just say, if the parent or, or guardian brings the child in, we don't just say, oh, now this is something you have to do. This is, you know, an additional sort of homework task that you have to do. We want to set the stage, get the child's buy-in at some level, um, and then we proceed to make exercises fun so they don't even feel like exercises. We do them in game format so that there are consequences in the game or there are results that occur during a game depending on how voice is used. Um, and, you know, when you're playing back and forth with a clinician and the child, the clinician is usually the one that we encourage to make the error first, you know, in a given game so that the child doesn't feel um, self-conscious. And at that point, it's the child's job to evaluate what the clinician is doing. And then it's the clinician's turn to um, self-correct. And then the, then the revo- roles are reversed. But this is all in game format. 
um, using the kinds of activities that a particular child might enjoy. Okay, Sarah, do you want to say anything on that subject about getting kids involved? Well, in my office, I have Connect Four, I have Jenga, I have different books that we read. I mean, I think um, we do basically exactly what's Kitty, what Kitty's describing is play a game. You can you make up five M words, and then you get to take the turn. And if you if you end up falling back in your throat, or I end up falling back in my throat, what we miss a turn or something mm-hmm. like that um, to help increase engagement and motivation and excitement because yeah. if the child knocks over or I knock over the the tower of blocks then it, it might evoke some loud voice use and then how do we manage our voice in that situation you know so it's not as exciting as 30 kids playing you know kickball on the <laughs> recess but it is you know one way to replicate um, something that might happen in their life. Kitty, you've only recently started focusing on children's voices with your research. Can you tell us about what made you decide to explore this branch of inquiry, please? Well, I sort of came into it kicking and screaming. Um, For the last many, many years since I've gotten into the field, my focus was the adult voice. Uh Um, I had a lot of experience just by chance in child speech and language problems, but um, not much in voice for children. Um, And I... I came to it kicking and screaming because I'm so enamored of the adult voice, and I come from a, a background of performing arts as well, and I'm you know in love with singing and performing and all that kind of stuff, and um, especially in the adult voice. But the thing that got me into it was that increasingly I just saw this huge gap and need in our field. Uh, so much has been done about around the adult voice in the past 20 years or so, and and very little. Um, has been done systematically in terms of research, mm-hmm. in terms of development of systematic programs for children. And, and I'm training clinicians, a lot of whom are going to work with children, and I'm sending them out without tools. And so I, you know, I started to get more and more compelled, and you know, it's taken me a long time. And, and I've had a lot of collaboration with some wonderful clinicians um, who have helped me develop this program. So it, it was basically a needs sort of a thing. And then I, when I started getting into it, I started, I started getting really interested in it. Like, this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Sarah, what inspires you to work with children? I mean, I know you see adults and children mm-hmm. in your practice. So in each of the practices I've worked in, it's sort of like, oh, kids. And I've always been like, oh, I'll see them. I don't, I, it's a sort of a personal enjoyment I had. Um, that I find it interesting, I find it challenging, and I find it helpful for mm-hmm. the, the children. I mean, first and foremost, it's helpful to them <laughs> versus yeah. my benefit. But um, yeah, I mean, I enjoy working with kids. I don't think I could do it for my entire caseload, and uh-huh. hence I work with mostly with adults. But I do really enjoy working with kids and getting them involved and helping them increase their awareness and their um their continued enjoyment of their voice because most of the kids that I end up seeing are kids that love to sing and helping them and love music and helping them to continue to be able to enjoy that is part of what is great about it. All right, so I'd like to turn our attention to a specific case um, to talk in more depth about your approach to treating children's voices, Kitty, or some aspect of your research anyway, or the research that's going on in your organisation. You sent me three audio samples featuring the same little boy at three different stages of his therapy programme at a children's hospital in Pittsburgh. Um, And we'll listen to each of these in turn, and hopefully you can explain what's going on in each one. 
I know you're immersed in research at the moment and aren't seeing patients right now, Kitty, yourself. Um, so you didn't treat this patient. One of your colleagues did. But yeah. I gather you're familiar with the case and many others like it. Can you please tell us, before we listen to the first clip, um, why the little boy was sent in for therapy in the first place? Uh, the, the boy came to the clinic with hoarseness and was found to have nodules on both of his vocal folds. Nodules are very common. Um, they're like little calluses on, on, the, on the vocal folds that develop from strenuous kinds of voice use. And uh, the initial clip, I believe, that you will play was from his initial evaluation when he hadn't had any therapy at all. Today is November 23rd, 2010. Nine. Uh, oh, a blue spot is on the key again. How hard did he hit him? We were away a year ago. My mama makes lemon muffins. Um, and then it took a few months to get the usual insurance um, approval and what mm -hmm. have you for therapy, and then the therapy was initiated. And this clinician related to me that, um, as is fairly common, she felt that one of the first things that she needed to address was some of the family dynamics in terms of, you know, family modes of interacting. Some families are very vocal. Um, some families have great healthy vocal patterns and some don't. So that was, a, you know, a critical issue to address. And also, with this particular child, I think there were some um, dynamics of sibling rivalry and arguments with his sister Ooh. that sort of fed into the voice problems. And so, as part of the therapy, those those interactional patterns were addressed in a very loving and gentle way with the whole family. So this is a question of family dynamics. The second clip that I believe you'll play was from his sixth therapy session, um, and these are models that are specifically constructed to help um, get the vocal folds unpressed. Today is April 5th, age 9. Whom oh he? Whom oh my mom? My mom makes many muffins. Elliot ate an apple. In April, Addie attends an apple. We were away a year ago. My mom and Susie are at the zoo. And then the third clip is from his discharge uh, session when he underwent his final evaluation. And we usually wouldn't expect, depending on the, the initial severity of the problem, by the end of therapy, wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily expect the problem to be completely resolved. What we do want to see is that the child or adult has improved and that that person has acquired the tools to continue improving um, outside of the clinic. May 3rd, 9. Oh, a blue spot is on the key. How hard did he hit him? We were away a year ago. My mama makes lemon muffins. You're listening to Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. I'm in the studio with UCSF voice therapist Sarah Schneider. Voice disorders researcher Kitty Verdolini-Abbott is joining us on the phone from Pittsburgh. We're talking about voice health issues as they relate to children. We just heard three very short samples of a, a young patient in Pittsburgh, a young boy who was being treated for some vocal problems. Um, it was very interesting, Kitty, to hear the difference between the three samples, but I mean... Um, I could hear some difference, but it didn't sound like the problem was fully resolved by the, the final clip. Can you tell us about that, please? Right, yeah. As I was mentioning before, um, generally at the time of discharge, depending on the initial severity of the problem and the individual, we don't expect the voice problem, especially in children, to be 100% resolved by the end of therapy. What we're looking for is an improvement in mm -hmm. several parameters, so the sound of the voice, the feel of the voice, um, possibly voice-related handicap uh, as based on a parental or a child questionnaire. 
and we want the child and the parents and the family to have tools to continue making improvement um, after the initial discharge. Yeah. All right. Well, for the next part of the show, I thought we could turn our attention more closely to different examples of children singing and talk about the ways in which kids can sing in these different contexts in a healthy way. Let's start now by listening to an audio sample featuring a quartet of children performing the famous campfire song Barges with great aplomb and quite a bit of speed. This song is called Barges. Out of my window, looking in the night, I can see the barges flickering light. Silently flows the river to the sea, and the barges go silently. Barges, I would like to go with you, I would like to sail the ocean blue. Barges, have you treasures in your hold? Do you fight with pirates brave and bold? Out of my window, looking in the night, I can see the barges flickering light. Starboard shines green and port is glowing red, I can see their signals far ahead. Barges, I would like to go with you, I would like to... This is Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. Tonight I'm chatting with voice experts Kitty Verdolini-Abbott and Sarah Schneider, both members of the American Speech Language Hearing Association, about vocal health for children. I just played a track featuring a quartet of children performing the famous campfire song Barges. Now, camps are a place that kids commonly go at least once a year in the summer to let off steam. Typically, their parents aren't around. And singing, of course, is an important activity around many campfires. Kitty and Sarah, what can you tell us about the vocal hazards of singing around a campfire? Uh, when Chloe brought this up, I felt like I thought immediately of a few patients that I've seen that have arrived home from camp and been hoarse and subsequently in our office. Um, <laughs> and I think, um, you know, lots and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of kids go to camp every year and clearly we're not seeing them all. So mm-hmm. some kids are doing doing okay with this, but there are kids that are not using their voice as healthy as they, can, as they could um, and ending up with some issues, whether it's screaming, shouting, whether it's staying up late, whether it's chatting with their friends in the bunk, you know, and, <laughs> and you know, not getting a lot of sleep, screaming across the water, whatever it may be. Huh. Yeah. Well, so the parents aren't around. So, I mean, what can be done to kind of prevent this, these uh, problems from taking place? Well, I think a lot of it depends on who the um, camp song leader is. Mm-hmm. Very often there. You know, I remember when I was in um, summer camps, there were church camps when I was growing up, and uh, we always had song leaders who were themselves very vocally healthy and encouraged beautiful singing. And, you know, they would teach us parts. And, and you know, these 90 children in the, in the mess hall three times a day, we would sing and sing beautiful mm-hmm. music actually mm-hmm. and i don't recall anybody having a voice problem from that i've i've known about other camps instead where there's a lot of encouragement to be vocally um competitive in the singing and so the emphasis is not so much on the beauty of the singing as it is on just being raucous mm-hmm. and i think that that can that's probably one of the most basic issues mm-hmm. Well, okay, so a lot of responsibility then lies with uh, adults who are responsible for the children yeah. on, on this stage. And I think, you know, on a, in a different note, we 
occasionally we'll see the sort of the camp counselor. Mm-hmm. So the the question is, like as Kitty's bringing up, what is the vocal model mm-hmm. for these kids? Absolutely. You mean the camp counselors are ending yes. up in the therapy <laughs> yeah, office too? Exactly. That's not altogether <laughs> yeah. surprising. Or- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This evening's Voice Box, all about children's vocal health, with me, Chloe Veltman, and special guests, voice experts Sarah Schneider and Kitty Verdellini-Abbott. We heard a trio of wonderful tracks by three children's choruses. Singing in a chorus is a popular activity among kids, both at school and outside, and some of these choruses push their singers really hard to achieve excellent results. First up on the roster just now was the Piedmont East Bay Children's Choir with Let Frogs and Crickets Carry It On by Kui Dong from the work Since When Has the Bright Moon Existed. Then we listened to the Crystal Children's Choir based in Silicon Valley with their take on the flight of a bumblebee. And finally, the Capital Children's Choir of London performing a terrific version of the rock band Guns N' Roses classic song Sweet Child of Mine. Besides singing around the campfire, choral singing is one of the most common environments in which kids sing. Now, choruses are usually run by brilliant vocal pedagogues who work hard to make sure that kids are singing in a happy and healthy way. But what are some of the potential health hazards facing child choristers, Kitty and Sarah? From from my perspective, I think we um, that 
often the children's chorus is a great way for the kids to explore and learn about their voice. My brother, uh, my younger brother, grew up singing in a boys' chorus and I think had an amazing experience singing from when he was in seventh or eighth grade all the way through high school and through his uh through puberty when his voice changed and working through exploring his voice. Um, for some kids that are having trouble with their voice or using a less than efficient and effective mechanism, it may be a little bit harder to learn, you know, breathing techniques and how to manage their voice when they're often receiving a lesson in within a group setting. Kitty? Yeah, I think there are a lot of issues there. Um, I agree with Sarah completely that um, it's it's a wonderful opportunity to, for children to sing in choruses and to explore their voices and their ex- expressiveness. Um, I think sometimes um, some children really do love music a lot and and they want to be the best kid in in the choir and you know so they may push themselves to be that or or they want to hear themselves over the surrounding children and so to hear themselves they might push themselves a little bit. Um, another potential issue is, as Sarah said, if someone has a little bit of a voice problem for whatever reason and they sing on top of that and try to get a good voice mm. and so squeeze their vocal folds together to get rid of some of the air that's, that's, that's coming out, they can hurt themselves. But I think another issue is, um, well, two other issues that come to mind. Um, one is duration. Mm. So what is the duration of singing compared to the non-singing periods? Um, are t- if they're singing for an hour straight or two or three hours straight without any any downtime, that might be a little bit too much for anyone's mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me see, there's a last thing that I'm not remembering right now. Oh, uh, the last thing that comes to mind, or actually two more. One <laughs> is um, sometimes children who can read music are assigned inner voices and choruses. Because mm-hmm. um, they're harder, yeah. you mean? The yeah, lines like are more alto and, t- and tenor mm. and what, or what have you, uh, just because they can read music, but that those pitch ranges might not be comfortable for their particular instruments, and people can harm themselves that way. Also, I think um, one of the issues in singing in general, whether it's choral or not, has to do with what Sarah already mentioned, and that is during the voice change. Um, that lots of times, especially for girls, there's a lot of breathiness that's going on during mm-hmm. the voice change for a bunch of um, developmental reasons, and girls might try to clean up a little bit of that breath by 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 doing that pressing that we've talked about and they can hurt themselves. Hmm. Okay, so what are some maybe two or three suggestions that you would give to chorus leaders working with kids to make sure that their their kids in their choirs are singing healthfully? I mean, I think it's a benefit to listen. I mean, I think a lot of choirs do this, but it's a benefit to listen to each child individually, periodically, to mm-hmm. make sure that you're you're hearing them their mm-hmm. voice. Mm-hmm. Um in addition, I think, um, you know, and I think a lot of choirs do this. It's working on um, taking the pressure away from the throat, feeling, using the breath, feeling it more forward. But it, again, when a child is having trouble with their voice and they want to sound good, they're going to probably push through or if they want to be heard because they can't hear themselves. So maybe educating the kids on if you can't hear yourself, plug your ear or, you know, little techniques that the kids will think are fun Uh to help them sort of monitor their own voice versus compete with the people around them. The thing about not being able to hear yourself is an important one. I mean, sometimes that's to do with the room that the kid's singing in and also the placement within. I mean, if you're a child singing in a chorus and everyone around you is really loud, say, Uh and you can't hear yourself and that 
that can affect you, right? So maybe that should yeah. be the, the chorus lead, leader needs to be sensitive to that and maybe move the child somewhere else, right? Absolutely. And I think Kitty makes a really good point with a lot of these kids that we see that are just singing in choirs have three and four hour rehearsals and then they have maybe a half hour break in the middle and it's sort of whether it's a lunch break or a snack break and they're often running around screaming and playing during mm. that time period. I mean, I don't know exactly what the answer is when you have a lot of kids all in a room and you're trying to manage these groups of people, but maybe breaking them into smaller groups for break time. Mm -hmm. But limiting the demand on the children's voices, taking more frequent breaks, giving, you know, assignments during breaks so that they're quiet for a little while. Yeah, saving their voices. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to turn our attention now from talking about places in which children commonly sing to looking at more rarefied examples mm -hmm. of child vocal performances from the worlds of Broadway, classical music and pop. Let's start by listening to one of the most famous and vocally challenging songs for a child singer on the Broadway stage, Tomorrow from Annie. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> So predictable. <clears throat> Listening to Voice Box. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman, and I'm in the studio with UCSF voice therapist Sarah Schneider. Voice disorders researcher Kitty Verdolini Abbott is joining us on the phone from Pittsburgh, and we're talking about voice health issues as they relate to children. The track we just heard, Tomorrow, from the musical Annie by Charles Strauss and Martin Charnin, is perhaps one of the most famous and most difficult songs that a child actor has ever had to sing on the Broadway stage. That performance was the original Broadway soundtrack featuring Alicia Morton. Kitty and Sarah, why is that song such a challenge for young singers? So that song requires belting for for kids, uh, for a little girl that age, and um, and I think that belting at that age requires pressing that Kitty's been referring to throughout the show requires them to press their vocal folds um, tightly together and build up a lot of pressure, and so it can result in vocal injury for a lot of um, girls that sing that role. You've worked with kids in musicals, Sarah, that's uh -huh. right. Um, can you tell us about any of your experiences? Well, recently I've been working with a young girl in um, a traveling company, and she came in to us having already been diagnosed with vocal nodules and came to us after being on a week of voice rest. And when she came, when she, came she started talking again, and she sounded, you know, a little bit uh, breathy and raspy. And her mom said immediately, as soon as she started talking, whoa, she sounds so much better than she did a week ago. Well, she went on the vocal diet that we mm -hmm. were referring to before. She cut out all singing and talking. And then um, what we, rather than continuing voice rest because she was improving with voice rest, we introduced singing and talking back in and worked on talking at home and with her family because there was a lot of 
you know, arguments at the, her age with her mom and also worked on getting back into her role with singing and, and feeling her voice rather than just doing it. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we're all the things we've been referring to throughout the show is what we're trying to apply in these for these professional kid voice users. So what role does good technique play in helping child singers cope with the rigors of, of a theatre schedule? I mean, do, do most children on the Broadway stage have a lot of, you know, practiced vocal technique? So, I mean, when you're working with a 10-year-old, I don't know how much training you can have, right? Mm-hmm. This young girl did have some work with a voice teacher, but she she was sort of just working on developing her head voice and just and and had no concept of what sort of mixing the the chest voice and head voice was. And I mean, who I mean, often who would attend, right? Mm-hmm. She was talented and she could sing and she sounded good, and so she could just kind of belt up in her upper range and get away with it. Hmm. Well, I think there's also another um, issue, and that is that there is a way to belt, um, minimizing the damage. And this is something I know that Sarah's familiar with as well. And uh, it's a method developed by a woman from California, as a matter of fact, who just recently passed away. Her name is Jo Estel. And um, she she studied and and described a way to to belt in in a way that's that's not harmful for people. And I, but I agree completely with Sarah that probably a 10-year-old has not had a lot of time to develop that skill, even if the child has been exposed to it. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like child prodigies are at an especial risk of suffering from vocal issues. It's not surprising, after all, that child performers often burn out so quickly when the demands on their vocal cords are so great. Right. Um, how do kids who have exceptional voices, which often belie a maturity way ahead of the singer's years, approach the business of vocal health? Let's see if we can find out. I'll start by playing two examples of performances by young superstars from the worlds of classical music and pop. The first track features the young soprano Jackie Ivanko, age 11, singing the Handel aria Ombra My Fu from her new album Dream With Me. Then we'll hear country singer Scotty McCreary, age 17, singing Letters from Home by John Michael Montgomery on the 10th season of American Idol, which he won in May. Letter from home. 
This is Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. I'm in the studio with UCSF voice therapist Sarah Schneider and Kitty Verdolini Abbott, a voice disorders researcher based in Pittsburgh, is joining us on the phone. We're talking about children's vocal health issues. Now, we just heard the voices of two young prodigies with vocal talents that are particularly mature. The first track featured the soprano Jackie Ivanko, aged 11, singing the Handel aria Ombra Mai Fu from her new album Dream With Me. And then we heard the country singer Scotty McCreary, age 17, singing Letters from Home by John Michael Montgomery. The recording comes from the 10th season of American Idol, which McCreary won just recently in May. Sarah and Kitty, what can you tell us about these young singers' careers so far? What are the indicators from what you know of them that suggest that they are doing things right or maybe not so right from a vocal health perspective? From what I can hear, they are both doing so much right. Mm -hmm. It's just amazing. Um, Both of them have to have massive natural talent. Mm -hmm. Um, That's obvious. And um, they've probably come into the hands of some, I'm sure they have, of, of very good voice trainers. Um, one of the things that strikes me about both of them is not only the beauty of their voices, but the expressiveness and the musicality and the, yeah. and the, uh, and the arts, sh- artsmanship, artswomanship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, so that's one thing. But technically, two things strike me about both of them. One is their, something that Sarah mentioned before, and that is their exquisite register mixing. Mm-hmm. So they don't have a predominance of a chest or a head register, um, except, uh, you know, in, you know, according to the range. So when mm-hmm. Vanko went up very, very high, of course, she's not got much uh, register mixing at all, and she shouldn't. Um, but really wonderful balancing of registers, which for a variety of reasons is very healthy for the voice. Um, and second of all, the way that both of them must be using their vocal tract Um, which makes both of them sound older and more mature than they are. Um, That's primarily going to come from vocal tracts, which is the space above the vocal folds to the mouth. Um, And and basically the shape of the vocal tract, how a person shapes the vocal tract, is going to determine um, what we call the formants, and that is the, if you will, the, the regions of harmonics that are going to be enhanced. And with a larger vocal tract, you're going to have lower formants and a, and a more mature-sounding voice. And both of them, whether they have learned it or whether they come by it naturally, um, especially little Jackie, um, <laughs> so you true. Know, to, to, <laughs> yeah. to guess that she's well. 11 years old, maybe 18, maybe 20, uh-huh. but not 11. Mm. And in fact, when I saw her in, in, in competition on the television, that was one thing that struck me visually was her obvious manipulation of her vocal tract and how different her singing voice was in that regard from her speaking voice. She said a few words. I totally um, agree. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, mm-hmm. you want to you wanna say anything on the subject of Jackie or Scotty? Well, I um, actually was... And so, like, enamored by Jackie's little voice, I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> listening to her man- maneuver and, and work with her singing voice. I mean, she sounds like a 10-year-old or 11-year-old when she talks. Yeah. And, and she sings like she's much older. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw an interview with her where she said she just kind of gets lost in mm-hmm. what she's doing, and it's like a whole other world when she sings. And, I mean, it really is. The way she yep. uses her voice is amazing. Um, and I think with yeah she hits the groove uh hits the sweet spot and I think with both of them the one of the overriding um 
thoughts to me is they're both embracing a genre of music that fits their voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not trying to sing in something they're not. Like, for example, Scotty, throughout the entire American Idol competition, it's one of my guilty pleasures that I watch all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> um, I mean, throughout the process, he stayed true to the kind of singer he was. And when they encouraged him to um, try to sing a little higher, because he always goes for the low notes, you could tell that he was trying to navigate an area of his voice that maybe he hadn't ex- explored before, mm-hmm. but he wasn't necessarily trying to like really muscle it through. He was working with it. So um, they're embracing their voices, which is so usually pretty healthy. Well, so we're sadly getting close to the top of the hour, um, but before you both go, Kitty and Sarah, I, I think it'd be wonderful if you could just maybe give us a few tips for all those budding Scotties and Jackies Mm -hmm. out there. Um, What are some things that that those children can do, in fact all children really, to make sure that they can have, you know, lifelong wonderful, healthy singing voices and not run into problems in adulthood? Well, I think one thing that um, Sarah said really rings true and that is um, to be true to your own voice and just briefly, anecdotally, I was trained as a lyric caller to a soprano um, but it turned out that I wasn't a lyric caller to a soprano anatomically. I was actually a contralto. Oh, it's a <laughs> and, big difference. Yeah. Mm. And um, it was, and I started having voice problems. And it was when I, I decided to let my voice lead me, tell mm. me where my voice wanted to go and needed to go, as opposed to me telling it where I wanted it to go. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, 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 I really started to soar. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, and, and number two, at a much simpler level, but related to that is. Pay attention to what it feels like. If it doesn't feel right, it's not right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sage advice. Sarah, would you like to say any final words? Uh, I completely agree with Kitty. And the fact, listen to your body. If it feels good, you're on the right track. If it feels like it's effort or work in a way of concentration and focus and practice is a good work. If it's work where you feel like you've overdone it and it hurts, it's, it's too much. If it's a fight, it's not Mm -hmm. right. Well, that's all we have time for tonight, sadly. I'd like to t- say an enormous thank you to our wonderful guests for the show this evening, Kitty Verdolini abbott and Sarah Schneider. Thanks to both of you for sharing your expertise with us. Thank, thank you. you so much. This episode of Voicebox was generously underwritten by the American Speech Language Hearing Association, making effective communication a human right, accessible and achievable for all. Visit www.asha.org and enter voice disorders into the homepage search engine for more information. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel, the web editor is Victoria Lim and the membership and development director is John Bishop. Voicebox needs your support. To find out how you can make a crucial tax-deductible donation to keep us on air, please visit our website as voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. Check out our freely podcasts every week on iTunes and via voicebox-media.org and also visit our homepage at voicebox-media.org to mull over and respond to the question of the week.
Now, we love to know what you think of us. In fact, just this past week, I received an email from a listener by the name of Fred in response to our recent show about ornamentation. Now, Fred uh, took issue with some of the things that we put on air. He insists that the Star Spangled Banner is a terrible vehicle for ornamentation. Lots of large intervals. It looks jagged when one reads the sheet music. He was noticing while listening to the examples that successful ornamentation often takes place during a less jagged part of the melodies and smaller intervals. And he also said that the ornamentation of the Baroque era was part and parcel of the era, not just in music, but in architecture, painting and so on. And so thank you very much, Fred, for your comments. And please do email us or call us, write in with your comments anytime at info at voicebox-media.org. And our phone number is 415-841-4121, extension 3515. That's 415-841-4121, extension 3515. Boasting more than 500 choruses, the Bay Area is agog with choral ensembles. As part of an ongoing series celebrating the choral scene in the Bay Area, join Helene Whitson, co-author of the San Francisco Bay Area Chorus Directory and founder of the San Francisco Bay Area Choral Archive, and me, Chloe Veltman, for a listen to some of the best Bay Area choruses around on the scene today. We'll be here next Friday from 10 to 11 p.m. on KALW 91.7 FM San Francisco. I'll play us out with one of my favourite examples of kids having a great time singing. Here's the Sesame Street theme tune. Have a songful week. <laughs> 